This program is brought to you by Suffolk University. Please visit us on the web at www.suffolk.edu. My name, for a lot of you know me, for those who don't, my name is Andy beckman Rodeau. I'm a professor here, and I'm the co-director of the Intellectual Property Concentration and the Patent Law Specialization. And what we started to do a little bit last year and a little bit this year on an ad hoc basis is have um, people interested in presenting on topics, you know, kind of over lunch. So based on the turnout we've been getting, we're probably going to do more of these, so keep looking at your email and you'll uh, see notices of these. Also, like to thank the Boston Patent Law Association, who is a co-sponsor of this. And let me quickly introduce many of you may know Scott Pierce. He's a partner at Hamilton Brook Smith and Reynolds, which is a boutique IP firm and has lots of experience uh, in the patent area. Is also, um, which is good for us, an adjunct. He teaches biotech patent law. And what is briefly just a quick overview he's going to talk about is, you know, if many of you who do patent work are familiar with the Section 112 issue, which has been an issue in patent law for years, you know, namely Section 112, Paragraph 1 says the inventor has to meet the enablement requirement, explain so someone skilled in the art can make and use the invention. Well, the obvious question then is if someone can read it and know how to make and use the invention, then what does written description have to do with anything? What the Federal Circuit has repeatedly said over the years, written description enablement, different requirements. And why this is a hot topic is, well, for two reasons. One, because many people are clearly not sure exactly why they're different. And um, the Fed Circuit has granted, uh, they're going to hear on banc, a case involving this issue, and they may finally um, change it, or maybe they won't. We're not really sure. Um, but Scott's really going to address himself to that issue. So. All right. Uh, as Andy said, my name is Scott Pierce. Um, I'm a partner at Hamilton Booksmith Reynolds. Uh, I'm also an adjunct professor teaching the spring course, to repeat what Andy said. And uh, today we're going to be talking about uh, Ariad versus Eli Lilly, which is a case directed, they're going to be on rehearing, uh, talking about <coughs> deciding what is the scope of the, uh, the first paragraph of um, uh, 35 U.S.C. Section 112, which articulates a written description requirement, enablement requirement, and um, a best mode requirement. So to, that's where this remote is. And I've sort of given you a little bit of a lead in as to where I'm going to be going, and it's going to be important to, to keep thinking about this uh, as we go through, because the written description requirement, as we know, now know it, has a long history. And the question is whether or not as it's, as it's interpreted now, is a proper interpretation of the historical basis for requiring submission of a written specification to the patent office when you're um, applying for a patent. Now, the case itself is um, the, the patent number, I'll give it to you because I didn't put it anywhere else, is US641516. And is uh, directed to modulating effects of an external influence on eukaryotic cells by reducing activity of what is known as a transcription factor. Transcription factors are proteins that uh, activate genes so that they will encode other proteins. In this case, uh, the transcription factor is NF kappa B. I think uh, the NF, I believe, stands for necrosis factor. K, kappa is kappa immunoglobulin, and the B is for B cells. 
what was discovered uh, back in the early 80s, I believe, uh, uh, by David Baltimore and his group was that uh, that this act, this uh, transcription factor played quite a role in protecting cells from external influences. Uh, for example, bacterial lipopolysaccharides would be an external uh, influence which would, m might harm cells. This would activate the, um, the transcription factor so that it would cause genes, the related genes, to encode certain proteins like cytokines which would protect the cell. What was also discovered at the time is that some of the side effects of uh, having too much of this transcription factor present would cause some harmful side effects. And the patent was directed to reducing the uh, activity of the transcription factor. So in order to reduce those harmful side effects, much the way uh, aspirin, in addition to reducing pain, might uh, reduce uh, fever. Got it so far? Okay, good. If you have any questions, just please interrupt. And my normal classroom setting, I'm not used to speaking for long periods of time, as my students here will, will tell you. So the, the problem with the patent is that they didn't have a demonstration that any of the compounds or classes of compounds actually worked. The three classes of compounds which were articulated in the specification were specific inhibitors, dominantly interfering molecules, and decoy molecules. Specific inhibitors actually directly block the, um, the binding of the transcription factor to the gene. Uh, dominantly interfering molecules actually compete with the transcription factor for binding sites. And de decoy molecules actually mimic the binding site for the, uh, for the transcription factor. This, there were no, at the, uh, part of the problem is that uh, at the time of filing, what was the, the patent application that required for an effective filing date had no examples of specific inhibitors. A later filing actually had uh, an ex a naturally occurring example. Uh, but the, the date they needed, the, the application filed as of the date they needed, didn't have one. Uh, there were only hypothesized, hypothesized examples of dominantly interfering molecules. And with, with respect to decoy molecules, they had, did have a, a couple of examples some, they, uh, but of sequences, but they actually hadn't been demonstrated. It wasn't shown until after the application was filed a couple of years later that, that uh, these uh, molecules that they had put forth uh, proposed in the application actually worked. So what happened with this case is that a jury decided that the patent was valid and m met the written description requirement and enablement and was infringed. The uh, defendants uh, moved for judgment as a matter of law, JMOL, um, with the, the jury, with the judge, saying that, uh, requesting that the uh, the patent be declared invalid because the, uh, this, this jury did not have a substantial basis for holding that the patent had uh, met the written description requirement. There was not sufficient evidence for the jury to come to the conclusion that they did. The Federal Circuit, they, they, the judge denied this motion and it was appealed, went to the Federal Circuit, 
which is the, uh, as I may hopefully all know, is this the same as uh, the court where patent appeals are now heard. It's been in existence since 1980 and uh, succeeds the role, uh, takes the place of the role of the previous court, which was the uh, Court of Customs and Patent Appeals, the CCPA. Um, the holding by the Federal Circuit, well, the issue with the Federal Circuit is important here, and I laid it out. And I'll try not to do too much reading of slides, but I think it's important. The issue the, that was de decided by the Federal Circuit and I'd here I need my laser, was whether there is substantial evidence to support the jury's verdict that the written description requirement, written description evidenced that the inventor possessed the claimed invention. And this language is important, particularly this language, the inventor possessed the claimed invention, because that is the current standard by which written description is decided. Sufficiency of written description is decided. The court held that the jury, in fact, lacked substantial evidence for its verdict that the claims were supported by adequate written description. By the way, can everybody hear me? Okay, good. And therefore held that the patent was invalid. So, Looking at this written description requirement, as Andy said, this is a statutory requirement. It's understood to be a statutory requirement. The question is, what is the standard for meeting the written description requirement in the statute? The standard now is whether the inventor possessed the claimed invention. So what does the statute look like? This is the first paragraph of 35... United States Code, Section 112. And I've highlighted the three parts that the current state of the law believes this paragraph is broken into. A written description requirement, an enablement requirement, and a requirement that you describe the best mode of practicing the invention. <coughs> and just to go through, reading one more panel here, reading the entire sentence. The requirement is that the specification shall contain a written description of the invention and of the manner and process of making and using it in such full, clear, concise, and exact terms as to enable any person skilled in the art to which it pertains or with which it is most nearly connected to make and use the same and shall set forth the best mode contemplated by the inventor for carrying out his invention. The case of petition for rehearing on Bonk was filed following the invalidation of this patent by the Federal Circuit. The petition was granted, and that's what all the hubbub is about. Now the case is, a, is about to be reheard. Briefs are now being submitted by the parties. There have been a number of amicus briefs. But the debate fundamentally is whether or not this requirement of a written description is a standalone requirement or whether it is a function of the enablement requirement. As I said, the current state of the law is that this written description requirement stands apart from the enablement requirement. 
and that the standard for written description is possession by the inventor. The alternative side and what, the, what uh, is being advocated by the patent holders is that, no, that's wrong. The current understanding of the statute is incorrect and that the written description is not a standalone requirement and its only function is to enable one skilled in the art to make and use the invention. So the questions on Bonk for rehearing are these. Whether 35 U.S.C. Section 112, Paragraph 1, contains a separate written description requirement, separate from the enablement requirement, and if so, what what is its scope and purpose? Everybody got that so far? Okay. So now you're probably, okay, how long is this seminar going to take? (laughs) I think it's important in order to understand, or at least to give you some perspective of where the written description requirement comes from, to to see how it developed from the very beginning. In the very beginning is 1790. It's the first patent act. There are five major patent acts in this country. 1790, 1793, blind myself here. The heck? This isn't working right. At any rate, the two requirements are to distinguish the invention or discovery from other things before known and used. And the other requirement was to enable a workman or other person skilled in the art to make the invention. Now, this was a time in 1790 before there, was any, there were any claims. There was no provision for the claims in the statute. So really, in order to articulate what your invention was, you had to distinguish it from the prior art in the specification. The statute didn't last very long. It was replaced in 1793, but not because of this reason, not because of the separate requirements to distinguish the invention or and its separate requirement from enablement, but rather because it was impossible to administer. The board consisted of three people, the Secretary of State, the Secretary of the Department of War, of all things, and the Attorney General examined all the applications. There are actually 57 patents that came out under the Patent uh, Act of 1790. And it was an examination system. So the reason they replaced the statute in 1790, at least the, the major reason, as I understand it, was, was to replace this examination system with a registration system. And that was the Patent Act of 1793. But when they did that, they also corrected a couple of other things with it, and one of them was the fact that it's the Patent Act of 1790 provided no standard 
for patentable distinction other than that it be new. There was nothing. So, start to work. Here's 1793, and this is how they've revised the, the written description requirement. They are articulating a written description of, this, of an invention, but you can see that they've also they've continued to have these two requirements to distinguish the invention from things before known and to enable the invention. There still were no claims. Okay? And they also inserted a standard for patentability. And the first standard for patentability was that there be some new application of principle. And that specific and it, there was there was a requirement that the specification explain what that principle was. And the alternative to having a new application of principle and therefore patentability was that there was a mere change in form of proportion and a mere change of form of proportion wasn't adequate. That was what the, the, the counterpoint to having a new application of principle is that you only had a change in form of proportion and a change in form of proportion was not enough to, um, on which to base patentable distinction. Got it so far? And I will go somewhere with this. I'm <laughs> okay. So one of the early cases uh, to uh, adjudicate a patent was Odeon versus Winkley. And this was actually Joseph Story <coughs> writing circuit in Massachusetts. He was a Supreme Court justice at the time. And he's actually credited with a lot of the developments in early, early, patent, early developments in patent law in the first part of the um, 19th century. And here he did something very interesting. There was a parallel drawn between infringement and patentability in this case. With respect to infringement, this is, again, remember, there's no claims. There's only the specification. The court said, mere colorable alterations of a machine are not sufficient to protect the defendant. With but a direct parallel was made to patentability. And they said, their mere colorable differences or slight improvements cannot shake the right of the original inventor. Whereas you could get a patent to an improvement, but that patentable improvement had to, again, be based on a new application of principle. A mere change in form of proportion would not give you a right to a patent, and therefore you could not limit the scope the right of exclusion of an inventor. Understand? Okay. In Evans versus Eaton, this is also Joseph's story. This is the Supreme Court case. This is the case about uh, hopper boys. It's basically a milling apparatus. <coughs> the, um, the Joseph's story articulated there were two objects to the requirement for describing the invention. One was to enable artisans to make and use the invention. And the other was to put the public in possession of the invention, of what the party's claiming as invention. And the reason he did this is, was also as a consequence of the fact that there were no claims. The big debate in this case was, how much did you have to describe? 
how did you have to articulate what your, what your invention was relative to the prior art? Joseph's story came down uh, saying that in order to properly meet the written description requirement, you had to specifically articulate where the improvement was. Justice Livingston in dissent said, no, it doesn't matter. You don't have to do that. What you need to do is state what your invention is. You don't have to compare it to the prior art. But the story was in the majority, and the patent was invalidated. In 1836, provision for claims was made. It wasn't a requirement, as far as I know, but it was, a, it was provided for. And you'll note, in looking at the written description requirement, this paragraph, one of the phrases that we were looking at before is now missing. The phrase, to distinguish the invention from what was known before. And in its place is the presence of claims. And you will note that the phrase here now says, rather than and to enable, it says as to enable. So now you have the provision for claims. And it looks an awful lot like the measure of a sufficient written description is enablement of one skilled in the art to make and use the invention. And at this point, it's important to keep in mind the object, one of the object that Story mentioned in Evans versus Eaton, the object being to put the invention into the possession of the public. Again, this idea of requiring the application of principle continues in 1836. New application of principle, by the way, is not the current standard for patentability. At least it's not commonly understood that way. Winans versus Adams in 1853. Now, this is under the Patent Act of 1836. And by the way, after Hotchkiss versus Greenwich, which reportedly was uh, where the, the idea of obviousness was introduced, was uh, was decided in 1851, you can see that this parallel between patentability, patentability and infringement continues. Whether the defendants had constructed cars, this is the railroad car case where the claims actually identified a cylindrical cone at the base of the car, and the infringers had octagonal, octagonal um, cones at the bottom. The, the, the object of the railroad cars, lowering the center of gravity, increasing the strength of the cars, so that the cars could carry more uh, load were still there. The fact that you had an octagonal shape rather than a round shape really didn't make any difference at all. And what the court said, where the defendants had constructed cars were substantially on the same principle and the same mode of operation accomplished the same result. You couldn't avoid infringement. And with respect to patentability, again, they, they said, under our law, patent cannot be granted merely for a change of form to employ mechanical principles or other natural powers. That's the basis on which patentability rests. So you've got this parallel between patentability and infringement, both of them resting on application of principle.
1870, claims became acquired. But again, the basic structure of the, of the written description, this paragraph regarding written description stays the same. And once again, you see the phrase, as to enable. And the evidence that I see for requirement of claims is that the, is that the, the statute says, rather than referring to claims inferentially, or they're referring them referring to them specifically. The specification and the claims shall be signed by the inventor and attested by two witnesses. In White versus Dunbar, another case, this is after claims are required, you see that this, well, this was a case where it was a matter of canning shrimp. What they did and the spec, what the specification said is that you would put shrimp into a textile fabric You'd seal it in a can. You'd cook it. You'd be able to seal it. Through reissue, they broadened the language to say enveloping material. The Supreme Court in this case said no. They saw no evidence in the specification that you actually invented something that was as broad as envelop an enveloping material. And not only that, your claim was limited as filed and as originally issued to a textile fabric. So we must presume that that's what you meant, and you're not entitled to anything more than that, which is kind of damning for what we now know as the doctrine of equivalence. And I'll get to the doctrine of equivalence. So what this case really says is that between what the inventor is entitled to and what the, uh, the public appreciates, namely what they've been put in possession of and what they've been notified of, notification and the perspective of the public is what counts. And in this case, they saw no evidence that one skill in the art would understand from the specification that anything more than enveloping in a textile fabric had been invented. Graver Tank, this is the case when I mentioned doctrine of equivalence. This is the seminal case on doctrine of equivalence. They actually adopted and recognized Winans versus Adams. They call it Winans versus Denman, but it's the same case. And they quoted from another case, a later case called Sanitary Refrigerator, using this language. If the product or device performs the same function in substantially the same way to obtain the same result, the claim will read on infringing activity even if the literal language is not the same. And they said, well, but, uh, but once again, even as late as 1950, where the device is so far changed in principle, the doctrine may not be used to restrict the claim. They're talking about a change in principle. But if, um, unless you, you think that the equivalence be left to claims and not extend to what one would understand from the specification, there's this case, Engineering Development Labs versus Radio Corp of America. This was a Second Circuit case. It was decided by Learned Hand. And this was with respect, again, to reissue and the scope of what the patentee was entitled to in the, in the scope of the invention because the claims as reissued were broader than the, what the original specification laid out, literally laid out. The court applied reasoning that if you, if 
what you obtained here is, what you're ultimately claiming is substantially, obtains the same result in substantially the same way, you should be able to write the claim that way. So this is looking for support from the specification for claim language as it ultimately appeared. And it said any patent is entitled to some range of equivalence. And here they're talking about intervening rights. Intervening rights is a doctrine where if you let everybody believe that this is the only thing that you're claiming for a period of time and then you later change the scope of the claim, it's not fair to go back and sue people for what they thought was safe. So when referring to this doctrine of intervening rights, they said it certainly does not prevent amendments, which would go no further than to make express what would have been regarded as an equivalent of the original. So here you're looking at the specification equivalency from the point of view of one's skill in the art reading the specification as support for a claim. So just to recap, and this is all prior to the 1952 Patent Act, what you can see is a partition of the meaning of the term possession by the public, the original objective articulated by Joseph Story in 1822 from the time prior to the claims to the introduction of claims. So that possession by the public went from being a single requirement met by the specification alone to a requirement of the claims and the specification. Claims in the sense of particularity of the claims as, as they're written, meaning claim language. And the, yes, go ahead, Sonia. Um, in, in the material you showed us from the earliest act, yes. I think 1993, yes. it looked like um, the courts were interpreting, or the acts, was it wanted patents to address two separate populations of people, artisans and the public? Yes. So I'm, I'm, I'm That's now become skilled in the art. So, so yeah. the skilled in the art is still the artisan. Yes. And the public usually is unskilled. Yes, but they're looking, the, this, the, right, it was kind of became one skilled in the art as opposed to a partition between the public and artisans. Became one thing, those skilled in the art. Yeah, that's my understanding. Unless somebody wants to correct me. Okay, that's right. That's very interesting because, I mean, one skilled in the art, the general public is not skilled in any art. Right. Or in all arts. Right. Well, it's it's really a practical matter. If you had to write it for the person on the street who has no technical background, we'd run out of paper. That's right. Right. So, okay. So if you see this partition of, of meaning of possession by the public, in one sense it's, it's, it's fulfilled by the claims in the sense of particularity, but nevertheless provides for equivalence and equivalence and embodiments or equivalence in actual embodiments to the claim language as written. And also possession by the public in terms of the support in the specification for what's ultimately claimed. So, and, and this is in contrast some to a, one of the views of how the written description requirement is, is interpreted in that the, written dis- the, the requirement that the written description uh, do anything more 
then enable one's skill in the art to practice the invention disappeared with the advent of claims because claims took the place of providing a description of what the invention was. The claims did that. What I'm saying to you is my interpretation of the case of, of case development prior to 1952 did not indicate that claims took over whatever role the specification had in putting the invention into the possession of the public. The specification still had a role, and that was to support the claims. And it was not just the literal reading of the specification, but it was one's, what one skill in the art would understand from reading the specification. And what that implies is that there may be embodiments not articulated or even a scope, not literally stated, that might be broader without introducing what we know as new matter. Any questions? And this possession by the public, and as what I'm putting forward, is that this standard of possession by the public is a function of enablement. Because you were looking at the statute of 1870 and 1836, when they took out that phrase to distinguish, they changed the phrase, the phrase and to enable to as to enablement. As to enable. So that understanding of the specification by one skilled in the art of the scope of the specification is a function of enablement. Enablement of one skilled in the art to comprehend what the specific that the specification supports the invention as claimed. This is the 1952 Patent Act, the first paragraph of, one, of 112. And this paragraph has not changed over the years. There have been a couple of amendments of uh, Section 112, but as far as I can tell, it does not include this first paragraph. And in reading this first paragraph, I've highlighted, again, the parts I I emphasized in the previous acts, and this language is not that far afield. The specification shall contain a written description, as to enable, and shall set forth the best mode. And by the way, just to remind you again, this is not the current understanding of this statute, not the controlling law in this statute. The current law says there are three requirements, written description, enablement, and best mode. And what I'm suggesting is that the measure of written description is a function of enablement. But how is the statute interpreted after its, first interpreted after its enactment? In 1962, In Re Gay specifically broke down this first paragraph and found two sections and listed them this way, Part A and Part B. Part A, specification shall contain a written description of the invention, has to enable. Part B is best mode. So even early interpretations of the current statute said that the written description was written as to enable one skilled in the art.
In Ray Rushig in 1967, this is Judge Rich. Judge Rich uh, actually wrote a number of these cases. What he said is that in a case where there was no literal language for a claimed compound in a specification, there was no support for claiming that particular compound unless there was some kind of indicators pointing to that particular compound. In this specific case, the claim at issue was one that was suggested by uh, the examiner trying to put in place an interference. There was a broad description in the specification of a broad class, but not the particular compound, chlorpropamide, I believe. The examiner ultimately dissolved the interference of his own, on his own motion, but the claim was left there. The applicants filed a divisional application. And uh, the question became whether or not there was literal support for this compound. Judge Rich said no, and he used an analogy to finding a path through trees. He said that, um, that we're looking for blaze marks in a forest to point us in a particular direction. We don't see any blaze marks. Therefore, you haven't met the written, you haven't met the requirement. You don't, haven't shown any support for the idea that you invented this particular compound. Therefore, you can't claim it. And far from saying that this was a written description requirement, he, he said that this is not part of 35 U.S.C. Section 112. He said it's a question of fact, whereas enablement, I guess, is a question of law. And, but then he articulated what he meant. He said the specification, the question is whether the specification conveys clearly to those skilled in the art to whom it is addressed in any way the information that appellants invented the specific compound. And you can see here that there's still the emphasis on the public, those skilled in the art. In 1971, in Henri de Leon, this idea of description and enablement being distinct entities was put forth. And what they said was that enablement, you could enable, enable a broad class without particularly calling out or providing support for specific compounds within that broad class. And here's where I find that they actually laid out separate requirements in that first paragraph of description, both description and enablement as distinct entities. This was 1971. And in Ray Wertheim, 1976, a few years after that, this also, by the way, is Judge Rich. And it's the first instance of this language that I found. He said that the function of the description requirement now laid out separately is to ensure that the inventor had possession as of the filing date of the application relied upon for the subject matter later claimed by him. So here you see a change. He later goes on and he says, actually in the following sentence, he says that the measure of whether one has possessed the invention is, is determined by one skilled in the art reading the specification 
but you'll see eventually these two ideas take different paths. No questions? Okay. But despite the fact that De Leon laid out distinct description and enablement uh, uh, concepts, and that uh, in In Ray Wertheim, they had introduced this language of the uh, inventor being in possession. You can see that there were still some judges who interpreted the statute differently, more along the lines of Inri Gay, which where written description was measured as a function of enablement. And in this case, uh, Inri Barker, this is uh, uh, Judge Markey, who was actually, I think, the first chief judge of the Federal Circuit, he laid out the, the paragraph this way. He said it was a fairly easy, simple paragraph to understand that the paragraph required that there be a specification and it shall contain a written description of the invention in the manner of the process of making and using it. And he said that everything prior to this comma, at the end of the, the line, it partitioned the paragraph from what was to be contained within the specification, and that everything after that comma was how and for whom the invention was to be described. That's his interpretation, and it's in dissent. The majority opinion held differently. And this is, I forgot, Judge Miller, I think, said no, that's, that's the wrong interpretation of this paragraph. That the par- this first paragraph of Section 112 included a separate written description requirement and enablement requirement. And, that, and I put it in green where uh, he believed that there was this first requirement of a written description and his reading of where the second requirement began of the manner and the process of making and using it so as to enable any person skilled in the art to which it pertains, et cetera, et cetera. This, where you see this demarcation of one and two in green is the current dominant case law position of how to interpret this paragraph. So as I, as I said, you can now see that there is a, the beginnings of a division in the CCPA of how to interpret this first paragraph of Section 112. You look puzzled. I'm, I, uh, <laughs> I was thinking that, that it's just logic you know, and the manner of process, process making, because to me it, it looks like it says a written description of the invention and a written description of the manner of process making using it. That, that's just the how... Like, of the manner and process of making and using it seems to me to be directly um, referring to the written description. So it's not just a written description of the invention itself. It's a written description of the manner and process of making and using it. Right. Which, is, which would seem to make, make me think that this interpretation is absurd. Right. So my lecture's working so far. <laughs> <laughs> I work with Andrea, by the way, and she's one of my best critics. So Good. 
All right. So as a summary, post-1952 of the statute, we see two different developments here. One is the change in the judicial interpretation of how one, 112, Section 112, first paragraph, is to be read. And secondly, a shift in emphasis, or at least the beginnings of a shift in emphasis in the case law, from possession by the public to possession by the inventor. And what's most interesting is how this play as, plays out with the birth of biotechnology. Biotechnology. The biotechnology, although I, I tell my students and I tell everybody, is really biotechnology patent law is founded on the same principles. Really isn't any different in terms of fundamental application of principles. It's most closely akin to chemistry because chemist, so much of chemistry is uh, unpredictable. So unexpected results is a big thing in obtaining, uh, making arguments of patentability in the chemical field. And so, so it is also true in biotechnology because a single change in a nucleotide or a single change in, a, in an amino acid in a protein can completely change the function of whatever compound, or whatever that compound is. Now, just to back up a little bit and give you a little bit of background about technology, the fundamental issue and the problem that we're going to be discussing has to do with the relationship between genes and proteins. Genes are nucleic acids. Nucleic acids are polymers of nucleotides. Genes, the, whatever, there are only a few nucleotides uh, depending whether it's DNA or, or RNA. Uh, in each case, there are only four nucleotides, and they're arranged in a particular order. And whatever that order is in the polymer will dictate the protein that is ultimately produced. Proteins themselves are polymers of amino acids. Those amino acids, there's 20 of them. And the however, whatever the sequence is in the nucleotides of the nucleic acid will dictate what protein is generated. The problem comes in the fact that there's something called redundancy in encoding uh, proteins. That if you have a given protein, a number of different sequences can say nucleic acids with their distinct nucleotide sequences can encode the same protein. So that if you say a nucleic acid that encodes human insulin would literally embrace many nucleic acids under this, this, this idea of redundancy. But if you say a human nucleic acid that encodes human insulin, it means only one nucleic acid. Does that make sense? So that you don't necessarily have a one-to-one -one correlation between a nucleic acid and the protein that it will, enc it will encode. That's important, and that's where some of these cases we're going to be looking at come from. The first case is Fears versus Ravel. Now, this was an interference case, and this was Judge Lori. By the way, just to be clear, I'm not covering all the cases here on <laughs> this only representative cases that I think are going to hopefully give us the perspective that we need. Fears versus Ravel was an interference case. It was a three-way interference between Fears, 
Ravel, and Shigano. And again, as I said, it was Judge Lori. And what an interference practice is, to back up just a little bit, an interference proceeding is um, a priority contest among parties who are competing for the same claimed subject matter. And whoever is the first to invent or the first person to be able to demonstrate conception with reduction to practice will win the interference proceeding. The important aspect here to understand in an interference proceeding is that you don't need to support the entire breadth of what is known as a count. A count is equivalent to the claim. It's what what they're fighting over. You don't need to support the breadth of the count. You only need to demonstrate first that you are first with respect to an embodiment of that count. But nevertheless, Judge Lori put a lot of dicta in about meeting the written description requirement and meeting the enablement requirement. Now, the positions of these three parties were different. Fears had what they said was an enabling method for obtaining what was uh, this, what they were fighting over, which was uh, a claimed nucleic acid, a claimed sequence of nucleotides. He had a method for obtaining it and kept saying it was enabling. And the court said, it doesn't matter if you don't have a description of what that nucleic acid is, meaning you don't have a listing of the individual nucleotides in sequence. Because unless you have a description of that sequence, you haven't demonstrated conception. And it has nothing to do with enablement, that you can't describe what you haven't conceived. Ravel had literal language to that met, matched that of the count. And he said that, again, he said that his method was enabling. The court didn't pass on whether or not the method was enabling, but what they said was the mere fact that you had language to support the count doesn't mean that you have the invention, You've, that you either have conceived or reduced the practice, you have conceived the, this sequence of nucleic acids. That, what, that a claim, in fact, you've made a comparison between a count and a claim here, that if you have a claim that broadly describes this nucleic acid, it's equivalent to a single means claim, and it's, an, in fact, a wish or a plan, a wish or a plan to preempt the future. You don't have it yet. This is just what you want to have, and that's not enough as a demonstration of possession. you have a question back there? I'm sorry. Okay. So Shugano was the first person, was the first party, to have actually provided an enabling description to isolate that sequence and to identify what that sequence was. And so Shugano won. And what the court literally said was that, therefore, Shugano was the first to have met that written the enablement requirement of Section 112 and the written description requirement of 112, even though it was an interference proceeding. 
So the, the point of this is that you can see that here is the first time where literal description of what's ultimately to be claimed appears in the specification, and it's not enough. And it wasn't really a function of what one skill in the art would understand, because one skill in the art would understand the broad category. It's what the inventor possessed. So the specification goes from a document to be directly interpreted by one skill in the art to evidence of something else. And that was followed by this case, very famous case, Regents of the University of California versus Eli Lilly. And you have a similar situation, only this time the issue really was written description. And again, it's Judge Lori. There was an enabling method and a sequence for a rat sequence for um, nucleic acid that would encode insulin. The claims were much broader than that. They covered vertebrates and mammals. And rat was the only specific embodiment that they had. There was another example, six, which, which was directed to isolating the human sequence. And, um, and, but it was prophetic, meaning that they didn't actually do it. There were also claims that were directed to human insulin, <clears throat> the human sequence. And the court, Laurie said, here again, it doesn't matter whether example six is enabling. You didn't provide a written description of the sequence itself. And in this case, you need, they, were, they didn't actually commit themselves, and this is a common misunderstanding of Lilly. The court, Laurie didn't say that you have to have a sequence. He said that there were other alternatives. You, those other alternatives might be representative examples. They might be some statement of structure related to function. And they actually left it open-ended. But nevertheless, he did the same thing he did in fears. A literal description wasn't enough. He needed more. And why? Because that was what was required to demonstrate possession by the inventor. Interestingly enough, he didn't use the phrase possession by the inventor in this case that I could find. But I believe it's a consequence of the standard of possession by the inventor what that led to this holding. Literal description and understanding by one skill in the art was no longer enough unless it indicated to one skill in the art that the inventor had possession. Okay? So just recapping a little bit, I think we've, we've seen instances so far where the specification could actually support broader language in a claim that then originally appeared in the application as filed. And where the question of and if you and denial by the court where there's broad description of a class but claiming of a specific embodiment in that class that only appears after the application filed in effect failing to provide support in the specification by one, uh, as understood by one skilled in the art for a narrow embodiment. Lily is an instance where there's broad description of a class and denial of claiming that broad class regardless of enablement 
because specific embodiments were not listed. And to me, I think that is a consequence of a standard of a, interpreting the specification as a demonstration of possession by the inventor rather than for what it literally says. Does that make sense? Okay. In Enzo, things started to get a little freaky. This case, at first, again, it went to a sequence. This is for it was a, a sequence uh, uh, encoding a protein for selective hybridization. And it was deposited in a cell line that was publicly available. But there's no written description of what that sequence was. And following the logic of Lilly, at first they said, no, you don't have a written description. A deposit isn't enough. A deposit is not a written description. It's not adequate. This, the, re the result of this holding, I guess, created a firestorm. And a few months later, they reversed themselves on almost the same language in the specification. If you compare the opinion, the same language in the opinion, if you compare the opinions, there are whole blocks that are exactly the same. But they came to the opposite conclusion. And they said that where it's not possible to sequence, a deposit is adequate to meet the written description requirement. At this point, Judge Rader who was also a judge on the bench at the Federal Circuit, I guess lost it. He couldn't contain himself anymore. And he started to opine, and he does this in several, in a number of cases after this, about his interpretation of where the written description requirement came from. And this Enzo is the first instance of that. He introduced this phrase, anyway, he coined the phrase, priority policeman. And what he said is that the written description requirement was carved out by Judge Rich and Inri Ruschig from the first paragraph of 112, that it's not a statutory requirement. The only requirement of the written description in, in up until Judge Rich's decision in Inri Ruschig was that it enabled one skilled in the art to make and use the invention. It had no other function. Judge Rich induced this, introduced this idea of priority policemen, in effect, to prevent new matter from being introduced by later claiming something, literally, that didn't appear in the specification as filed. What he didn't say was anything about criteria of possession by the inventor versus possession by the public. In fact, he presumed that possession by the inventor was the standard. Moba v. Diamond came in shortly after that. This is really a mechanical case. It had to do with conveying eggs al along, well, moving eggs along a conveyor and manipulating eggs. And it was a pucurium decision. Rader was on, on it along with Bryson and Shell. And the question here was whether or not claims which made reference to a holding station were broad enough 
to embrace an embodiment, the increased infringement, infringer's embodiment, where there was no holding station per se, except the eggs were lifted directly from the conveyor. The specification said that at the holding station, the eggs stopped. In the accused infringer's embodiment, the eggs never stopped. They just were lifted from the conveyor. The, the opinion says that what was actually in possession of the inventor was a device where eggs were controlled at some point along the conveyor. And the language, I think, you hear is critical. The Lilly disclosure rule does not require a particular form of disclosure. He was correct. Because one of skill in the art could determine from the specification that the inventor possessed the invention at the time of filing. So once again, we're looking at what the inventor was in possession of. And interestingly, what they actually did was interpret the claim and interpret support for the claim in a manner more broadly than was literally articulated in the specification. So this possession by the inventor wasn't necessarily a restricting thing. It could possibly be broadening. Nevertheless, it unhinged the description requirement from possession by one skilled in the art and from enablement to make and use. Rader's concurrence, once again, he goes into this, uh, this priority policeman idea, and here he more severely criticizes the Eli Lilly decision. He said it was in, 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 inexplicable, and it's nowhere found in the statute, and that basically in the commentary will say the same thing, that what Lilly actually introduced was a super-enablement requirement. But he, here he made an equation between enablement and possession. He said to enable is to possess, and to pos show possession is to enable. Basically meaning that enablement and possession by the inventor were coterminous. And the implication of that is brought up later by Judge Rader in another opinion. But what, Bryce, what Judge Bryson said was he wasn't sure whether or not Rader, uh, Rader's opinion of Lilly was correct. He, didn't know, he wasn't prepared to say that what Judge Lurie did in Lilly was unwarranted in view of Ruschig. But whether or not this entire line of cases was an fundamentally flawed, that maybe there's a, there's a problem with interpreting uh, written description as being something either wholly determined as a function of enablement to make and use, or wholly determined by literal description, and that he thought that the written description requirement, therefore, needed to be revisited on Bach. In University of Rochester versus G.D. Searle, there's a, there's a, this is a case that's similar in some ways to Ariad, in that there was, uh, this was a claim directed to a method of use of a compound. Only in this case, they had no compound at all described, other they referred to it only as non-steroidal the, the method was actually a, method, a, thera a therapeutic method 
by administering a compound identifiable by an assay. There were separate patents that had issued on the assay itself. It wasn't a question of whether or not the assay was enabling. And so enablement was not uh, the issue in this case. The court found that there was a lack of written description because there was no description of a compound. And again, in Lori, uh, Lori, well, he, this time he goes. He went back to De Leon. He brought up the comparison brought uh, brought up by uh, De Leon that you can have enablement of a class without enablement of a specific embodiment. And here, Lori direct, uh, attacks that analogy. And with it, he attacks this fundamental division that has been made between written description and enablement. And he said that the problem with this hypothetical is that it rarely, if ever, happens. And to explain this, he made an analogy. He said that let's just suppose that written description and enablement are two different things. So that, for example, if an inventor had invented a radio, and without realizing it had, in fact, enabled something more, for example, a television. And his claim only said receiver. Now, the receiver is broad enough to cover both television and the radio. He said that uh, an inventor, an intelligent inventor, I forget the exact, exact phraseology, an inventor, if he had, in fact, also invented a television, or enabled a television, he would have realized it. And he would have claimed it. And the fact that he didn't describe it in the specification is a dead giveaway for lack of enablement. And that the problem with Lori's application of a separate written description requirement is that when you see a claim like receiver, and you've only described a radio, Lori's solution is to invalidate the claim, invalidate the patent, whereas he would limit the scope of the claim to the, to the radio. And, it's, and the, the fundamental reason that this hypothetical never works is that he's presuming that inventors are bright enough to describe what they have invented and enabled. And there are a couple of problems with this theory. One, I think, is that this happens all the time. There are many cases, both before and after Ruchig, where specification was interpreted to be enabled beyond what was literally described. And there are instances where language was permitted in a specification on the basis of what one skilled in the art would understand from the specification prior to Wertheim, which would permit this language to be introduced in claims. And it wouldn't be considered to be new matter because the standard for what was permitted to be claimed was an interpretation of the specification by one skilled in the art, which could potentially go beyond the literal description of the specification. And there were also instances 
where uh, claims were not allowed to specific embodiments prior to Ruchig, despite a ena- broad enablement and, dis- and uh, uh, despite enablement. Broad classes of compounds were articulated, and the court would not allow claiming of specific embodiment that had not been called out in the specification, both before and after Ruchig. And the language is generally the same in, in these cases, right up until Amgen versus Host, which is a case where it had to deal with claim language and a specification um, regarding transfection of exogenous DNA. The claims didn't articulate exogenous. They just said activation of um, DNA. Um, And the specification was limited to transfection of exogenous DNA. The question was whether or not the claims could properly read on activation of endogenous DNA. And the court held that um, the specification can be fairly read, fairly read to embrace, to support a claim that read on activation of endogenous DNA. So here again, as late as 2003, you've got an instance where what's being discussed, what the, the scope, what the support for the claims is being interpreted on the basis of a fair reading of the specification. Okay, so just going back, it's <clears throat> up until Lilly, fair reading of a specification might broaden interpretation of a specification. Not really a broadening, but would allow language that didn't literally appear in the specification and could deny claiming something very narrow. But Lilly went beyond that, and despite the broad classification, would say that the claim failed the written description requirement because there were not was not sufficient description of what had been broadly described. That's the difference. And the other problem is that far from uh, holding, far from his conclusion that his interpretation would result in a narrow reading of the claim, whereas Laurie would invalidate it, he himself in Chiron versus Genentech, did exactly that. This was a situation where the claim was to monoclonal antibodies to bind human breast cancer um, antigen. The language of the claim that was ultimately at issue and a deposit of a specific embodiment had been made as of the first filing of an application in a long series of applications. Now, there were continuations apart, meaning new, introdu- new matter was introduced in later applications, and the claims were ultimately interpreted to be uh, to cover uh, embodiments that were not technologically possible at the time of the first filing. But Judge Rader found that that claim was not properly supported by the specification in that first application because it, the, its first specification did not, did not meet the written description requirement because it did not describe that later developed technology. 
And this, then he said that this was separate and apart from claim interpretation. He said, fortunately, we don't have to interpret the claims because the claims, the specification does not re- meet the written description requirement. And he disallowed, prevented the party from relying upon that first filed application as a filing date. Any questions about that? So what happened was he he did exactly what he didn't said he wouldn't do. Rather than interpreting the claim more narrowly, he invalidated, effectively invalidated the claim altogether. He said that first application didn't meet the written description requirement with respect to later developed technology. And this is despite the fact that there's another case called Henry Hogan, which says you don't have to enable. You don't have to provide enablement for later developed technology. He knew he couldn't rely on that, so he relied on the written description requirement as opposed to the enablement requirement to disallow that application, that patent. Have I lost everybody? <laughs> so, just as a summary, in summary, then, prior to the 1952 Patent Act, seen a bifurcation of the requirement of, of putting the public in possession into claims and the specification. Particularity was the requirement for particularity, and notice was picked up by the claims, and support for those claims was picked up by the specification or remained with the specification between those two things, putting the public, one skilled in the art, in possession of the invention ultimately claimed. And after the 1952 Patent Act, the judicial interpretation of Section 112 changed from one where there were two parts, enablement and best mode, to three parts, written description, enablement, and best mode. And a shift in focus from possession by the public to possession by the inventor. And what this did was, between these two things, the change in this interpretation of 112 first paragraph to stripping away from the written description requirement enablement, it basically left no standard for meeting the written description requirement. And the shift of possession from the public to the inventor meant that you were no longer reading the, the specification for what it meant to one skilled in the art. You read it for what it indicated the inventor actually possessed, which might be quite different than what was articulated in the specification. The result is that the requirement of, of, uh, of, a more, of more than a literal description and an invention was required in many cases, not all. So just to recap the effect of this, You've got a written description. This is a statute. And just to indicate, just to give you some idea of where the impact of this and going through the statute is written. You have a written description. And you've got these two parallel phrases of the invention and of the manner and process of making and using it. Both of these are as of the time of filing. The measure of the invention of the literal description is a, historically had been a fair reading by the public. What one skilled in the art would understand from reading the specification. 
and of the manner and process of making of using it, enablement for the scope of what's described as of the time of filing. And the two of these things need to be coterminous. You need to enable your specification for the scope of what you've described. Now, possession by the inventor made substantially lowered that requirement. In fact, requiring a demonstration of the invention. As a, that, and you saw that in Lilly. They actually hadn't demonstrated, and therefore they weren't entitled to it. They didn't have the, speci- the, speci- uh, the exact sequence. They actually hadn't reduced the thing to practice. And you saw that in, in uh, Fears versus Revell also. With, with Raider's interpretation, it was possession by the inventor here in the form of an articulating a specific embodiment, identifying the radio, limiting the claim to the radio, and not entitling a claim to a receiver to embrace a television. After an application is filed, if a patent is granted, or regardless of whether a patent is granted, there will be, over time, more possession by the inventor or the public if the specification truly is enabling. And you'll see, over time, increased more embodiments and more demonstrations until at some point in the future, the realization of, of what is described in the specification will have been met. And the problem is that by limiting the claim to, what, to possession, as Judge Rader would have it, and as Judge Lori would have it, is you limit what you're entitled to claim to something much more restricted than that. And the problem with that is that this is what you've described. This is what one skilled in the art would understand has been described in the specification and as of the time of the filing has enabled. And so applying Ariad, getting back to our original issue, Ariad had a literal description of classes of compounds and even had an embodiment. And the, the question on rehearing isn't whether or not the method, the specification is enabling. The question is, not, is whether the specification meets the written description requirement. And beyond that, we'll see what happens. So just to, to recap, there are two current understandings of the written description requirement. One is controlling now that there are three requirements in the first paragraph, a written description requirement and independently an enablement requirement. And then the written, and there is no provision in that, in that first paragraph for how to meet the written description requirement. There is another understanding, which is being uh, promoted by the, um, the other side, where, in this case, the patentees, were that the sole function 
of the written description requirement is enablement to make and use. And what I'm proposing is that there's a third interpretation of the written description requirement. That written, the written description requirement is, in fact, a form of enablement. It's enablement of one skilled in the art to comprehend the specification as ultimately claimed. And that is the interpretation that I think is supported by the development over the past 200 years of what we know as a requirement for a written description of the invention. Any questions now? Everybody's asleep, right? <laughs> yes? It's a great presentation. Oh, thanks. So, you obviously put a lot of work into um, synthesizing all this together. It's, it's impressive. Um, I but. I'm very visual. I'm a chemist, so okay. I'm a advanced chemist, so all I right. like pictures. Um, I think the, the, the piece that I can't get my head around to understand how to count the plants right. is this idea of the inhibitor there in Ariad going all the way back to Imre Rushdie, where Right. This one small thing that you're trying to exclude other people from doing. Um, we've already given you the right to exclude. So then bringing Ariad in on this, um, I think where I stumble is why should Ariad have the ability to exclude others to develop inhibitors when they haven't told the world what these inhibitors are? They've said there, there are such things as inhibitors out there, but they haven't really talked about that. And, I guess it's where I'm trying to understand how you're synthesizing you know, right. this together so that in, in a chemical world, and I know that's very limited, but I think you're right, the whole unexpected results for chemical and biotechnology are begging answers to these things. Yes, and I, I think you're, you're I think accurately reflecting the, the thought process in the community, which <clears throat> I think, if I'm understanding you correctly, is a fear that patents will be granted with inappropriate breadth, which will inhibit future development of this technology. To a degree, but if I can just limit it a little bit. I don't mind, in one sense, the broad genus, if you will, that you know, describes 10 million species, potentially. Um, because and I, I tell my clients, well, you've, you've, you've put a fence around the play area. Right. You've kept all, everybody outside the play area. If they want to come in and play, they've got to come to you. However, they are not stopped from at least developing something inside the play area that in the end they can claim right. their devices above yours, but you will stop them from practicing it. So the question is, why should the first person be allowed to go in much later and say, although I never described this, I fully enabled it, so I, I'm, I'm entitled to a claim. Right. And that's why I'm having a problem. Because I see both sides, and I can get pulled both directions yeah. on well, just going back to Ruschig a little bit, it's not exactly the same situation. In Ruschig, what the uh, patentees were trying to claim is a specific 
compound that had not been articulated in the application that's filed. Okay? And here, they're not claim, trying to claim a specific compound, or they're not articulating a specific compound. They only make reference to the function of reducing the activity of this transcription factor, and the only ways they propose doing that in the specification are by use of compounds, or classes of compounds, specific classes, well, broad classes of compounds. And they have a couple of instances of what those would be. And the question, interestingly, in, in our area, it wasn't one of enablement to make and use. It was sufficiency of written description, which the current state of the law holds apart and independent from the enablement requirement of that same statute. So the, the issue of, well, it doesn't seem fair that someone should be able to get a broad claim on the basis of broadly categorizing things um, is, I think, has to be broken down. One of the aspects of that is whether or not someone claiming something broadly and enabling, as of the time of filing, that breadth should be barred from be having that claim read on embodiments that are not specifically articulated in the specification and even might be made possible only by later developments in technology. To hold otherwise means that your patent is frozen in time. The only thing it's going to cover, and I think this is the logical uh, conclusion from following uh, Rader's reasoning, is that if you claim, if you enable a radio at the time of filing and you and you obtain a claim to that radio in broad terminology, you're only entitled to a radio. Anything, any embodiment that would be, that either isn't specifically described in the application that is filed, or a consequence of developments in technology, wouldn't be embraced by the claim. Would effectively mean, make the, the claim and the patent useless. In, in practical terms. So you should be able to claim something broadly and have it cover subsequent developments even though you didn't specifically articulate them and even though you didn't enable those particular embodiments that you had enablement for the scope as of the time of filing but you didn't have enablement for subsequent, uh, for subsequent embodiments. And Ray Hogan is quite clear about that. You don't need to enable subsequent developments in technology but it's silent about written description. What Rader did in Chiron is he filled in the other side on his own account. You're not entitled to scope that would embrace embodiments that weren't possible at the time of filing, namely humanized or chimeric antibodies, because that technology didn't exist. Therefore, you couldn't have described it. Therefore, that claim is not supported by the written description requirement. Does that make any sense? No, no, okay. it I understand exactly where you're coming from. This is the debate we're having in our firm right now. Is which side do we come down on? on which side? Down. Yeah. But my point here is I'm not I'm sure not either side. Right. I think you. Right. It's right. Yeah. I'm sorry. You had a question first. I'm sorry. Oh no, it's okay. You okay. Okay. Well, I was babbling, right? <laughs> okay. Thanks. Yes. Aspirin modulates and that can be 
Yeah. Well, would it mean that the claim is anticipated by aspirin? I don't know. I'm not going to. <laughs> <laughs> well, didn't, didn't they actually try to limit the scope of the claim to actually avoid having that? That may be, yeah. Yeah. Any other questions? Are you writing an amicus brief? No. The third uh, option? No. No, um, but I think it's interesting. I've, I've, brief, I've gone through some of the amicus briefs, and um, the, the, the petitioners answered it, uh, the two questions. One was whether or not there's a separate written description requirement. If, no, if not, it's scope and purpose. Uh, the petitioners said, no, there's no separate written description requirement. Uh, one of the, uh, a lot of them are saying, I think, that the, the direction that... Um, that these uh, briefs are going is that no, there's no separate written description requirement. Then enablement is only the, is the only standard. And in fact, there's an interesting line in this petition, in the um, brief by the petitioners, which actually come pretty close to what I'm saying, which is that uh, interpretation of specification is a form of enablement. Um, and there's another there's another brief by a guy, a guy by the name of Ken Birchfield, who um, and in his uh, uh, he answers the question saying that the yes, there are two requirements written in written description and enablement. But the ultimate conclusion that he comes to is it's almost essentially the same as the petitioner's brief. Their position with respect to the, the function of the written description saying that it, yes, it does exist. Its purpose is to prevent introduction of new matter and to, uh, for things that are for the scope of later claims. So they, they, here you have two parties, I mean, two, two entities, one of them saying, yes, there's a separate written description requirement, the other one saying no, and essentially coming to the same stand of conclusion as to what to do with the paragraph, which I think is interesting. So any other questions? Uh, well, I said, I'd like to, is, what time is it? It's only 1.30, I'm half an hour ahead of time, wow. So, well, I, if that's it, I, I, go ahead. I'd like to thank everybody for coming today. This preceding program was brought to you by Suffolk University. Please visit us on the web at www.suffolk.edu.